Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, Senior Counsel at the Calfee Law Firm, and on today's show, we'll review a recent report from the Congressional Research Service looking at the SEC's current guidance on ESG and help break down an incredibly challenging couple months in this area. For our interview segment, we welcome in New York City attorney and compliance expert Richard Chen to discuss the practical tilt of running an effective compliance program and how compliance officers can be more productive. Finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of the History Has Your Back segment, where we look at the dating life of Warren Buffett, a quote from the most famous citizen of Matanui, and a good lesson in both life and compliance. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, the Congressional Research Service recently reviewed the SEC's current guidance on climate change risk disclosures. The application of SEC criteria for the materiality standard on disclosures, current SEC efforts to address climate-related impacts on global supply chain risks, and SEC-related ESG regulations. The report addressed the following key areas, among many, many others. Different types of climate risks current SEC guidance and criteria for climate change risk disclosures, the application of its criteria for the, quote, materiality standard to disclosures of material risks, the manner in which the SEC is addressing the impact of climate change on global supply chain risks, and finally, the marketing of funds as having an ESG focus. The report from the CRS raised, I think, some really good questions as to the extent to which emerging climate risks are materially important to investors, and two, the usefulness of current climate-related disclosures for investors. I think it presents a pretty good, uh, uh, fair discussion of the present state of law with respect to disclosures in the climate change area. In its identification of certain climate risks, the report does draw a distinction between climate risks that are related to events in the physical world And on the other hand, political or public relations risks that derive from popular perceptions as to physical world events. While both are certainly important, they are not identical. And each of those risks requires, I think, a separate, um, if not entirely independent analysis. And if you, like me, have had a really hard time following all of the ESG action as of late, Here's a real quick timeline of events of everything that's happened just since March. On March the 1st, the SEC provided guidance on investing in ESG funds. On March the 3rd, the SEC, that first one was from the SEC's Office of Investor Advocacy and Education. On March 3rd, the SEC Division of Examinations issued their 2021 priorities, including an enhanced focus on climate and environmental, social and governance-related risks, conflicts of interest for brokers and investment advisors, and other fintech-related attendant risks. On March the 4th, the SEC established a new climate and ESG task force within the Division of Enforcement. The SEC explained that the task force will initially focus on identifying material emissions or misstatements and issuer disclosures relating to climate risks under existing regulations. On March the 12th, the SEC acting director at the time, pardon me, the SEC Division of Corporate Finance acting director John Coates issued a statement on the need to develop both an adaptive and innovative ESG disclosure requirement. On March 15th, 
then acting SEC chair. Lee requested public comment on ESG disclosure. Two days later, on St. Patrick's Day, SEC acting chair Lee recommended better disclosure on ESG in proxy voting. Two days after that, on March 19th, SEC commissioners Peirce and Roisman challenged all of the recent focus on ESG from the commission. Uh, less than a week later, on March 25th, the West Virginia uh, Attorney General opposed the SEC approach toward compelling disclosures on ESG, arguing that some of those even raise constitutional concerns. Actually, let's move to the month of April now. We're still not done. But on April 12th, the SEC Division of Examination highlighted compliance deficiencies on ESG offerings. And in that risk alert, the division observed a number of deficiencies of firms engaged in ESG investing, inconsistent portfolio management practices and disclosures, inadequate controls with maintaining, updating ESG-related guidelines, uh, proxy voting inconsistent with stated objectives, unsubstantiated or misleading approaches in ESG, insufficient controls for ensuring that ESG-related disclosures and marketing were in line with the firm's practices, and finally, insufficient compliance programs for addressing relevant ESG matters, particularly when compliance personnel had minimal knowledge of those matters or oversight over the ESG-related disclosures. Later, a few days later, on April 15th, SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce again urged ESG policy advocates to rethink their approach, hoping that instead of she urged the advocates of the ESG corporate governance to encourage the public to develop solutions to climate and societal changes instead of pursuing what she called a prescriptive approach. And then finally, on April 20th, the Congressional Research Service reviewed the SEC disclosure policy and practice on climate risk that we talked about at the top of the show. (laughs) Again, as the report notes, there is no legally binding definition of what even constitutes an ESG fund. And frankly, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of relevant topics out there that you probably couldn't shoehorn into one of these three factors. So what does all of this mean? And what does it mean to have ESG integrated into your investment process? Well, the SEC's Division of Investment Management has primary responsibility for administering the Investment Company Act of 1940 and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940, which, of course, both of those include developing regulatory policy for investment companies, such as mutual funds, and for investment advisors. Currently, the SEC does not have any rules that specifically govern the use of ESG principles or the disclosures relevant to climate change. And now, with the establishment of the ESG task force through the Division of Enforcement, it feels a little bit like the tail is wagging the dog here in this situation. Back in Season 1, Episode 11 of this podcast, Debevoise attorney Rob Kaplan warned of the dangers of regulation by enforcement. Any enforcement action should be preceded by the adoption of very clear laws and rules that are governing the purported misconduct. With regard to this new task force in place, we're still not sure what those are. It's really hard for an industry to effectively make sure they are in compliance with certain disclosures or to make sure that they are abiding by things in in a way that is not going to run afoul of the law when they don't know what the law is. Further, the establishment of this task force suggests that 
enforcement on these you know purported uh, uh, disclosure failures is a pervasive problem. And I'm not sure that we have the complete evidence to support that as of yet. My hope is that this task force does not result in the SEC trying to adopt ESG disclosure requirements by bringing enforcement actions and leading to that exact thing that Rob Kaplan warned us about, where you start to have regulation by enforcement. That is most definitely not the way that rules should be made. As we move into the interview section of today's show, I am incredibly pleased to welcome Richard Chen, the founder of the Richard L. Chen Law Firm that serves the investment advisory community. Richard advises on numerous compliance matters, including compliance program development and implementation, mock audits and SEC exams. He also counsels investment advisors concerning business formation, structuring contracts, mergers, employment, succession planning, private funds, and operational due diligence. Before launching his practice, Richard spent many, many years at several preeminent law firms in New York City after graduating from Harvard Law School and Harvard College. One of the things that impresses me most about Richard is his ability to take really complex and difficult problems um, that we all face as compliance officers and break them down in a way that makes them feel very attainable. And, and he has this practical knowledge set that I think will be really beneficial for a lot of our listeners to hear about. So Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Patrick. It's great to be here. One of the items that I know <laughs> so many of us in the compliance space talk about and you know, this is one of the things that uh, that came up during Rob Toll's podcast about, you know, one of the problems that all compliance officers face is is typically we are, you know, overburdened. We're, we're you know, overworked and we're constantly pulled in to a number of different areas that where are we are always necessary. Um, there are always things where many of the business units and clients that we serve want our input. And so being productive can sometimes be a consistent challenge that, that many of us face. And so, you know, all of those burdens lead to inefficiency and effectiveness and oftentimes stress, right, for compliance officers feeling like uh, we just aren't able to get enough done throughout the day. So I know this is something that, you know, certainly you would face in, in your role as both counsel. And I, I know you also serve as a, a, you know, as a CCO. Is there anything that you use to help serve as kind of a guidepost <laughs> or something to help you kind of navigate what can be a challenge when you're trying to prioritize the, all the different tasks that you have? Yeah, Patrick, that, that, uh, it's, it's a great question. And, and, and as you noted, we all face challenges with getting everything that seemingly needs to be done. And so I think it's important to have some sort of process for prioritizing what we do. And so I think that one of the helpful frameworks I use is called the Eisenhower Principle, which categorizes tasks based on whether they're uh, important or urgent. So they're either important or not important, or they're urgent or not urgent. And, and so imagine a two by two matrix. Um, and, and, and the most important things to tackle are those that are important and urgent. And those are things that need to be tackled right away. For instance, handling a trade error because a failure to handle it in a timely fashion may need that the error uh, account may not be able to uh, be used in order to um, uh, handle a, a trade error. Uh, then there are tasks that are, um, that they are uh, urgent, but not important. For instance, uh, 
you know, providing uh, non-substantive or stylistic changes to compliance uh, policies or disclosures that are provided in response to an RFP. Those things can be delegated and should be delegated to other folks uh, be- because they're not the highest and best use of uh, our time as a compliance officer. Um, the-, the third is uh, tasks that are uh, important but not urgent. Uh, and those things can be scheduled uh, for later. For instance, uh, scheduling various uh, compliance trainings or looking at new technologies that can help us become more efficient and effective as compliance officers. And then the fourth category is are those tasks that are not urgent or important. And we'll touch on those later, you know, because many of those can and should be cut out of uh, many tasks that we have to to accomplish as compliance officers. Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. And I, it kind of provides really a nice baseline or framework for uh, another item, uh, another, you know, tool in, in a compliance officer's tool belt. That, that many folks use, but I, I don't necessarily feel like this particular item that, that I'm about to ask you about is utilized to its fullest potential. And so that's something else that I, I think I'd really like to dig in with you. So the idea of having a compliance calendar, right? And uh, for many folks, right, we just got through kind of, you know, what is a, uh, or either are through or nearing the tail end uh, of what is an incredibly busy season for many people with the Form ADV, and for private fund advisors, form PF, and you know, then you've got the first quarter and the end of year compliance. You, you had the end of year compliance certifications. Now you've got the first quarter compliance certifications. There's a lot of stuff going on. So many people, right, have used a compliance calendar, and and it can be a good method to help people be, uh, be more productive. But one thing that's not always talked about is exactly how folks can go about building those compliance calendars and specifically developing. Uh, you know, how, how does one develop an effective compliance calendar? What What is the best way to build that out? I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts there. I, I do. It's a great question, Patrick. And I think it's something that we uh, as compliance officers should should take time to to think about as we're, we're plotting what needs to be done in the course of a year. And I think there's several important things to know before we, we do this. One is, you know, how much time does it take for us to accomplish the various compliance tasks that we need to do historically? You know, how much is that taken because I think that's important in helping us frame out, you know, when uh, uh, those tasks should be put uh, scheduled for uh, the compliance calendar. Uh, along with that is is the need to space out appropriately uh, the compliance tasks that we have to do. Now, obviously, there are certain regulatory deadlines for. For instance, uh, you know, sending out the disclosure brochure and privacy policy notice typically at the end of uh, April for, you know, those who have fiscal year and December 31st or other types of, of, of regulatory filings. But many of them are really up to us. And I think it's helpful for compliance officers to appropriately spaced out uh, the compliance tasks, you know, understanding how much time some of these things take so that we're not stressed and we're not rolling too many things into any given month or any given quarter. The third principle I think it's important to understand is to be able to block time for big, big tasks like conducting the annual compliance review or the risk assessment and making sure that there is a sufficient amount of time in order to to do those tasks. Um, and because oftentimes we'll need a devoted amount of time where we aren't distracted. I think this applies uh, both with respect to the compliance 
calendar where you measure things in terms of months and, and quarters, but also in days. So, you know, for myself, I schedule certain tasks uh, where I have blocks of time and I need to do analysis or drafting in the morning. And then, uh, you know, when you have meetings that uh, need to happen, so oftentimes I'll try to block those meetings into time so I can allocate more time to devote to other things that I can accomplish without having to be distracted. And then the and oftentimes at the end of the day, I'll tackle those things that need to be done on an administrative basis. So blocking time is important. And the last thing for compliance uh, calendars is just to uh, be specific about what needs to be done and make sure that we know what the uh, what the task is, what the deliverable is. Um, so those are some key things I think that will help to really structure a compliance uh, calendar. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because you just touched on something that I found at some point in my career, um, either I had a, a mentor tell me something similar to what you just described, or or I just kind of fell into it. But as as I would start to get emails in and it, they would uh, uh, describe in depth an assignment that I had, or, or I knew that there was going to be like an outstanding question that I was going to have to answer, I, I would take that email, right? In the same way, lots of people organize the different emails that they get. But then if I knew that there was a task associated with it, like even before Microsoft had like, you know, their their tasks and planner apps built into the like Office 365 suite, I would just block out time in my calendar, right? Where I was going to accomplish right. that task. And man, that was so effective at helping me make sure that I never dropped an assignment. Right. That like I never forgot to do something because if it was in my inbox, it means it meant that I hadn't scheduled time to do it yet. And so but it, then as soon as I uh, knew I needed to do something, I put it in my calendar and I could kind of block out the appropriate time to do it. So that was that was really helpful. I do uh, want to let our listeners know that I think our definitions, Richard, of what constitutes uh, uh, the morning and the evening <laughs> might be a little bit different. If I remember right, I think you're a pretty early riser and you're you're out there slogging through contracts at like 4.30 a.m. But nonetheless, I think it's a great it's a great point. And I think it's it's one that that uh, a lot of our listeners could you know certainly benefit from. Yeah, I've never been a morning person until I had kids, but then I realized, oh my goodness, this is such a great time to get all those things that I never get done, you know, done. And it frees up my my day to a certain degree and makes it actually less stressful because I'm not thinking about those things that I can knock out early in the morning. Now, it doesn't mean I always get up at 4.30, but I try. <laughs> no, that's a great point. And, and again, what I, I love that uh, kind of a lot of the topics that we're talking about today, it's really like a perfect natural segue from what was our final show of season one and talking about how compliance officers can kind of deal and try to cope with and mitigate the stress that they feel in their jobs. Well, certainly one of those ways is finding, you know, using these simple uh, kind of elements to help them be more productive throughout the day and, and be able to accomplish all the things that they hope to. Speaking of accomplishing all the things that we hope to do, you know, one of the other items that I think has been really helpful for a lot of compliance officers in accomplishing some of the tasks that they need to do in order to effectively, you know, develop and administer their firm's compliance programs is the use of technology and, and really just resources in, in general. Right. And, you know, I think a lot of us have certainly uh, um, had some exposure to, if not directly using a compliance technology vendor. Certainly you've seen advertisements for them or seen them demoed at a, at a conference 
And I guess one of the things that I think a lot of folks struggle with, and, and this can be both at large firms and at really small firms, trying to find um, ways that you can use technology, trying to find ways that you can automate parts of your compliance program if you're working on a budget, <laughs> right? And and so I guess one question for you would be, what's for those uh, folks that are on limited budgets, what are some examples of how they can use some of the basic programs, be it Microsoft or others, to to help assist with the administration of the firm's compliance program and, and help make some of those tasks a little bit more efficient? Uh, absolutely. You know, the everyday technologies that we use that you mentioned, Microsoft Office, actually have some very powerful tools that can help compliance officers. For instance, there's a feature in uh, Microsoft Word and Microsoft Outlook called Quick Parts, uh, which I use frequently to replicate text, um, you know, whether it's short snippets or even whole templates that I use, you know, uh, in my compliance practice. And by Quick Parts, um, you can simply type in a few keystrokes and it will replicate the entire text. For instance, I can type in the word agenda and I can get the template agenda that I have for meetings that comes out and I can then populate it. So it saves me a lot of time by simply being able to access those uh, frequently used snippets of text without actually creating uh, it from scratch and 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 creating uh, potential errors. The other thing that I think is very helpful is in Microsoft Outlook, which allows you to actually pre-program certain reminders, tasks, and things like that, or notices that you want to send out to the firm um, without having for you to remember to send them out on a periodic basis. You can pre-program uh, those uh, text, uh, those emails uh, or reminders uh, to folks. Uh, to to uh, to be sent out on a day and time that you choose. Um, so so those are some of the features that you know if we explore the basic technologies that we you know pretty much all have, um, th- those um, are powerful uh, in order to save time and reduce errors. Yeah, no, that's those are great examples, and I literally just wrote down quick parts. <laughs> so I I fully plan to check that that technology out after our after our call today. <laughs> For those firms that may have a little bit more cash at hand, what are some other technologies or other items that maybe you have found to be really effective in trying to maximize the time spent in the completion of some you know, relevant compliance tasks? Well, the good news is there are a host of, of different technologies, but I think even before sort of looking at what's available, I think it's important for firms to consider what's really important to them. And oftentimes that'll be based on how much time is being spent on a task and how much risk there is to a firm. For instance, you know, if a firm has a lot of active trading and utilizes expert networks or, you know, consults insiders or consultants, it may be important to have trade monitoring software that can monitor for insider trading or front running. You know, uh, if advisory fee billing uh, presents a significant um, burden in terms of amount of time, there are uh, technologies that can enhance uh, uh, and and speed up the uh, advisory fee billing process uh, and make it more efficient. Uh, you know, then there are other programs and 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 uh, technology solutions now that are utilizing artificial intelligence to you know, among other things use what uh, disclosure documents the firm already has available to uh, pre-populate uh, customized compliance policies. So it's great news. But I think, as I said before, I think the important thing is really for a firm to understand what it really needs. 
uh, and where um, where spending the most time uh, that can be saved. Yeah. Have you ever are, are there certain areas of a compliance program? And I mean, you've already touched on a couple, but where you felt like uh, developing a library of materials or resources or some stock materials could could also be like really beneficial again to help save that compliance officer or that compliance department time down the road. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And and I think Patrick, oftentimes, uh, you, you know, we we get asked questions over and over again from the compliance policies and procedures, and and to the extent that we can create whether they are videos or frequently asked questions or things like that. Uh, that can be available to employees uh, in order to answer those questions that we see over and over again uh, and to refer employees to those that can save a lot of time uh, and effort and hopefully also uh, make it more understandable than uh, oftentimes reading, uh, you know, these dense compliance manuals. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. And I like one of the things that comes to mind right away is, you know, for like new employees, right? And new employee training of a firm. I mean, generally speaking, you know, the the items that you need to cover, walking through the code of ethics, talking about reporting requirements, understanding the different kind of compliance obligations, though that's that's like perfect fodder for the the kind of stuff where you could put together a really good training deck and be able to kind of recycle that you know, for, for many uses. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, but there's certain parts, I think that, you know, we obviously need to refresh more, for instance, now with the new marketing rule, all the new <laughs> policies <laughs> and procedures will have to be rewritten and that will probably take some time, but you're absolutely right. You know, certain core elements of our compliance programs and core workflows can absolutely be uh, replicated uh, uh, in, in other, other formats uh, to be helpful to our employees. That is a great, that is a great point. Uh, you know, when when a rule hasn't changed for sixty years, <laughs> essentially, uh, imagine some some amendments to it might then uh, might then require a little bit of additional training on that front. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So uh, another aspect of a compliance officer's day to day life that probably can get can feel overwhelming at different times is they, they feel like they're getting all these different tasks in, right? Or they're getting a lots, lots of different requests in from multiple different departments or multiple different persons within their firm. And it, it doesn't, they don't necessarily have a lot of confidence that they're going to be able to get everything done. And, but they also don't know exactly what they can delegate out or potentially things that they might be able to even you know, potentially cut completely from their compliance program. So I, I don't know, I, I guess a question for you would be, you know, what are some techniques that you have used? What are some things that you have done that can help a compliance officer manage? You know, we've talked about ways that, that they can help get stuff done throughout the day, but even just managing the total number of tasks that they actually have to accomplish, or at least that others in their firms feel like the compliance officer should be, you know, that they should be the one that's kind of running with that particular subject matter area. That's a great question, Patrick. And and this is where I really feel for us all as compliance officers, because, you know, we oftentimes uh, have so much to do. Uh, and we think in worst case scenarios because we want to be protective. But at the same time, it, it stresses us out and we're overwhelmed. And unfortunately, I think it results in us not being focused on the most important priorities, which I think, uh, you know, Rob told indicated in, in your last uh, episode, right? So um, there's two sort of buckets that I think uh, are important to consider. One is 
cutting out tasks, cutting out tasks that are lower priority or, or, or not important, and then delegating. Cutting out tasks is, is, is really critical because I think uh, we, if we're unable to cut out uh, unimportant tasks or tasks that are less important, we can't focus on the really important things that we need to focus on. Um, and, and so I think it's important for us to take stock of what is required and to layer on best practices after that based on sort of our capacity, right? For instance, tasks associated with a firm that trades in large cap equity securities where effectively there's almost no trading commissions, right? I mean, think about whether or not it's necessary to conduct a best sex review, uh, especially if you're using uh, the, the primary custodian for most of the trading. Is it necessary to conduct it quarterly or could it be conducted annually to free up time to do other tasks, right? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so certain of those tasks, I think it's important to, to, to cut out so that we can focus on the, the, the uh, most important areas of focus, right? The second area is delegation. And I think that this is important not only to save time, but frankly, because oftentimes there are folks at the firm who are better able to take on certain responsibilities, namely in, uh, you know, folks in the investments area and the operations area. I'll give sort of several examples. Um, you know, for instance, if, if, if there are suitability reviews that need to be done with respect to whether or not the investments for an, a client are continued to be suitable for the, the, the client, th those are likely to be better done and performed by uh, wealth managers or others who have a more consistent relationship with the, the client, right? Same thing on the advisory fee billing side where folks in the operations may have much more understanding uh, with respect to what is going on with, uh, with clients. Um, and then on the IT side, right? The cyber, uh, cybersecurity uh, and the fact that operations may be more versed, well-versed and, and familiar with these things. Now, delegation doesn't mean that compliance doesn't have a role. It, clearly, it's still important to provide oversight. But I think that it's important to understand that Certain of these tasks are better performed by folks who have more familiarity with clients, with operations, um, and various elements of ensuring compliance. Yeah, and I, I really like, I mean, one, that that's all great feedback. But one of the things that strikes me that's so important that you mentioned there at the end <clears throat> is when you are serving in the role of compliance and when you are in one of those situations like you just described where, where you know, you have a task that is on your plate, but in reality, the actual content, the, the substantive material that you would need to really best accomplish that task is going to be better performed by a different business unit that's going to be a lot more familiar with that data or with whatever that subject matter content is. You know, the most effective way uh, that I've experienced really to, to get that business unit and to, to buy in, right. And to have that collaboration inside your firm is to not go back and to say to that business unit, Hey, you need to do this. This isn't for me. You need to do this, you know, operations or, or, you know, investment team, but rather to say, Hey, we could really use your help with some of these questions here and, and make it, make it very, 
uh, apparent that compliance is going to be a part of that process, right? It's not that it's not that we're totally offloading, right? All of the responsibility there. Rather, it's we need your collaboration. We need your expertise here, investment professional, operations professional, to help us with this, and then we can work together to make sure we find the right landing spot. Absolutely right, Patrick. Because I think too often. Uh, when delegation occurs, uh, you know, it's seen as a handoff when, in fact, you know, that's likely to engender a, a negative reaction, right? We want to make sure to under, uh, that folks understand uh, that as compliance professionals, we are collaborative. We want to all get to the same place. Uh, and so it's important for us to each put in sort of what's what we know best about what's going on in order to, you know, perform effectively. Yeah, that's great. It actually, what this like particular question about you know working with uh, senior management, working collaboratively with the other business units within the firm, um, you know, it sparks another question about <clears throat> how the role of chief compliance officer, and certainly you know, in episode ten of season one, uh, we uh, had the very great fortune of being able to speak with SEC Commissioner Purse about chief compliance officer liability, you know, and one of the items that came up during that call was, you know, talking about how compliance offices are often the ones who are uh, taking on a lot of the liability for the entirety of their firms and for the behaviors of of others at their firms, um, including senior management and including, um, you know, others inside the firm that, that they may not even have direct supervision over. Right. They may not even be able to affect a, a day to day uh, kind of basic blocking and tackling supervision type uh, role with certain individuals, again, d- depending on the size of the firm and the, and the exact type of situation. But a question for you would be, you know, what are some suggestions that you would have that compliance officers can do to help protect themselves and maybe provide a couple examples? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I, I think that it starts at the outset of the relationship uh, that a compliance officer has with a firm. Uh, and it, it, it's helpful to understand where the firm sits in terms of explaining these things. Uh, you know, it's important for us as compliance officers to explain the fact that it is a unique role in that it does have personal liability from a regulatory perspective that uh, it, that stands out, right? And uh, that so it's important important for a firm to realize that the compliance officer, as we as compliance officers want to do the best for the firm and to make sure, you know, not only that we keep the firm out of regulatory trouble, but frankly, that we put a best foot forward, right, as a as a positive, you know, brand building exercise, right? Um, now, at the same time, we as compliance officers need protections. And I think sometimes uh, it's important to think about whether or not protections uh, can be added to your employment agreement in terms of liability and indemnification, understanding that in most cases, you know, if you perform within the scope, you're protected, but still having those protections are important. And then layering on uh, additional insurance protection, like with investment professionals, you know, there there is insurance, liability insurance protection for CCOs that's specifically focused on uh, the acts the chief compliance officer. And so I think it's helpful to uh, ask firms to make that available as they 
uh, have protection with respect to uh, investments and um, and other types of acts, you know, through the errors, omissions, and directors and officers uh, liability coverage. Having this protection will just provide compliance officer with that support that they need and, and to feel comfortable that they can perform. Uh, even more effectively. Yeah. And I, I do. Again, I like the way that you framed that because I think it at least it, the way you framed it there provides the compliance officer with some credibility, with some legitimacy when they go to senior management in a way that talks about kind of the role and what they're taking on as a result of the role in the same way without seeming kind of ungrateful or, you know, unappreciative for for the opportunity. So I, I think that's I think that's really great. Thanks for that, Richard. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a couple of other things I, I would say that uh, that compliance officers can do, especially when they face um, uh, uh, specific issues that that create uncertainty. As we all know, regulations are not always clear. And so sometimes we have circumstances where we, um, you know, we we're, we we want to take a position and at the same time protect ourselves and the firm, right? Uh, and I think in those circumstances, um, documenting the analysis that we mm-hmm. take when we take a position is very important because at least we can demonstrate, even if a regulator disagrees with the analysis down the road, that the issue was considered. And I think that does go a long way towards demonstrating good faith, right? The, the Basically, that the issue was not ignored. And then the other thing is, I think it's helpful for compliance officers not to operate in a vacuum. There's so many resources available, including those from NSCP, you know, it's a, which is a great community uh, with forum and people who I found to be just incredibly generous with their time that you can bounce ideas off of. And so, so we shouldn't feel like we're island, that we do have um, uh, resources that we can utilize to help us better perform and protect ourselves and the firms we work for. Yeah. No, that's great. Uh, I appreciate that. And and you're exactly right. That uh that you know ability for us to to draft that you know memo to file that at least helps kind of explain our own mens rea at the time, right? Like what what we were thinking and why we ultimately either made a decision the way that we did, or in those cases where maybe the compliance officer has a, uh, a a slight disagreement, or or you know they they take a different position than the way senior management is looking at a particular issue. There's something to show that again the the issue was considered, and Absolutely. so it provides a little protection. So as we kind of move into a, a final topic here that I think will be really helpful for a lot of compliance officers, one of the things that I think we've touched on here, right, that idea of working collaboratively. Uh, with other business units and certainly, you know, having a seat at the table with kind of senior management, uh, 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 an issue or a challenge for many compliance officers is how they can foster more compliance within their own, you know, within their own firms. And so I guess what's one way or maybe what's a couple ways, you know, that that you have found uh, it effective to be able to help engender a little bit more compliance within firms and and really, again, kind of jumpstart that process? It's uh, a great question. So, so I, I can think of three basic things that, that I think are helpful. One is to make policies and procedures more understandable. And now I know that oftentimes we have uh, large complex compliance manuals that lay out sort of all the policies and procedures of the firm, which, you know, it, it is 
oftentimes very challenging for employees to to read and understand both in terms of the uh, difficulty of some concepts and frankly, the length, right? And so to the extent that those policies and procedures can be explained more in plain English, that helps. But I think it's also helpful to have uh, short, uh, shorter documents or even reminder cards or things like that, that lay out and boil down the employee's specific responsibilities in a very, very short, perhaps bullet point fashion so that people can understand because, you know, it, it's, it's hard to remember everything we have to do. And the easier that we make it for people to remember, I think, um, uh, that, that is effective. Another area I think that is helpful is, to make compliance more engaging. I think we all like a good competition or incentive or award. And I think that compliance can utilize this uh, in order to uh, incentivize employees to, to, uh, to just, you know, the, a little extra token of, of incentive to, to, to perform better, right? For instance, uh, you know, if, if we can you know, have small tokens like dinner for two or something like that, right? For folks who uh, perform well during the course of a year in, in compliance or something like that. Something small that uh, provides an added incentive for, for folks to perform better. It, it's, uh, I, I think it's, uh, we should uh, be not afraid to, to utilize that. And then there are also ways to make compliance more engaging. Oftentimes, our uh, compliance trainings are, are one-way lectures, uh, and I, I do this as much as anybody, but I think to the extent that we can make it more interactive, for instance, can it be done as a, as a, as a game show quiz like a Jeopardy where folks are responsive and it's, again, it's a you know, competition or a game that provides a bit more interactive discussion. Uh, and I think that it will help things to stick a bit better. The, the last concept um, is repetition. I think it's very important for us, however we do it, to provide reminders. Because as, as I said before, oftentimes it's hard for us to remember everything we have to do. And, and, and reminders uh, are often helpful in, in fostering better compliance, for instance, reminders about, uh, you know, the dangers of, and, and how phishing attacks happen, you know, may help us not click on an attachment or a link or things like that. So I think those are some of the things that can be helpful to enhance, uh, enhance compliance. I absolutely am thrilled by what you just said. And it reminds me specifically of it like takes me back to law school a little bit where like if you wanted to get people at the law school to do something, the two things that were basically it was like a hard, it was like a commandment, right? It was like if you want people to go there, you know, make sure you have food or make it a competition. Absolutely. <laughs> And yep, so I had the same experience. <laughs> and so, so if you're able to, if you're able to, you know, people, everybody's got to eat. Yeah, <laughs> like that's right. Everybody's got to eat. And people do, people do thrive off of competition. So I think, yeah, I think both of those ideas uh, are, are fantastic and totally, again, help kind of ingratiate, you know, compliance in the firm and at least can help try to engender or foster some of that different culture of compliance. And, and again, make it a little bit more fun, right? So it's, it's not it's not so professorial where you're you're sitting at the head of the class and you're just, you know, walking them through, you know, a, a death by PowerPoint, you know, presentation, uh, but try to make it a bit more engaging. I think I think that's great. 
<laughs> well, th- thank you for all of those fantastic practical tips, Richard. I know that for a lot of our compliance officers there that are struggling with, you know, too many tasks and too little time, many of the the tips you've provided today will be great. I, I wanted to get you out of here on this, which is something a little bit more fun. And we've been doing this with uh, a lot of our guests kind of throughout, throughout the history of the show. Um, but, you know, what's where is one place that, you know, when all of the travel restrictions are lifted, you know, any COVID related uh, issues are in the rearview mirror, where's one place that that you are really looking forward to travel? Absolutely. Yeah. My, my wife and I really do enjoy travel. We've, we've traveled to nearly 40 countries. And so I think right at the top of uh, my list is Kenya and Tanzania. And Kenya, uh, because I would love to experience the great migration, just to see the, just, uh, the majestic migration of, of, of all these animals. It would just be amazing to see. And, and, and Tanzania being right nearby to climb, uh, Mount Kilimanjaro, which is definitely high on my bucket list. Okay. Do we know the ele- what What is the elevation of Mount Kilimanjaro? I think it's 19,000 and change. Oh my uh, goodness. Yeah. Oh yeah. my goodness. That's yeah. incredible. And to be, to be able to see the snows of Kilimanjaro, you know, cause they're disappearing, uh, you know, quickly, I think, uh, you know, that that's, right. that's gotta be pretty amazing too. Right. Well, you know, one, that sounds like a fantastic trip. And I really, really hope that you uh, get to take it here sooner rather than later. In in the interim, again, uh, really, really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing some of your insights with with us and, and with our audience. Thank you again and uh, and have a great rest of the week. It's my pleasure, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Today's final segment features another installment in the History Has Your Back series. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, this segment represents the part of the podcast where we go back in time to help us better understand the present and help define where we're headed in the future. In today's History Has Your Back, we look at the high school dating life of Warren Buffett. But more specifically, we look at making sure we don't lose sight of what's important. Since we last spoke, one of the things I had the pleasure of doing was watching the HBO documentary on Warren Buffett. And in the course of the documentary, it talks about how when Warren was in high school in the 1940s and still very much finding his way in life and apparently in love, uh, at some point along that journey, he purchased an old funeral hearse. Well, I should say he owned about half of the interest in the car. Thinking it was practical because he owned half of that interest, he then used it to pick up a girl on a first date. And I know that this may come as a shock to you, but let's just say she was not impressed. <laughs> now, I, I learned a variable, I, I, I learned a very valuable lesson for my three and a half year old and a princess from the island of Montanui named Moana, who stated once, sometimes our strengths lie beneath the surface, far beneath in some cases. Don't judge me, I'll do anything to get a three and a half year old to sleep. Certainly, Warren's date at the time couldn't have known then that this that later this young man with a a penchant for funeral cars would turn into the great oracle of Omaha and one of the world's greatest philanthropists. But that's not the real reason why uh, that's not the real lesson I I took uh, from the anecdote. 
If the separation between work and personal life was difficult before, the pandemic basically pulled that problem aside and said, uh, yeah, thanks. Hold my beer. <laughs> As many of us continue to struggle balancing personal and professional with the work from home environment, it's even more important for us to make sure we carve out the appropriate time to focus on our families and those we care about. The fact is, nobody wants to get picked up on a date in a funeral car, regardless of whether or not you own it professionally, and nobody, not even your family and loved ones, want you to constantly be talking about work, especially when you're at home and with the people you care about the most. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfee and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Richard Chen, for coming on the show to share some of his practical insights into how compliance officers easily and efficiently can be more productive in running their firm's compliance programs. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for a Compliance in Context podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceInContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. And don't forget, the Reg BI Masterclass is coming soon. 